Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, June 27th, 2023, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor. Well, due to severe storms and power outages in Anastasia's area, uh, her power was out and she wasn't able to get the news together for this evening, but she'll be back for the next show. And Lavendar is getting ready to travel. So um, it's, it will be me and our very special guest this evening. And also, just as a reminder, the Teton meetings will be starting July 1st through July 7th, and I'm sure that most of you have heard Lavendar um, talk about that, and you can find that information on our website in the Vault of Knowledge. Our very special guest this evening is Dr. Dawn, who has turned trauma into victory several times over, not only for herself, but for her patients. She is the living proof that miracles are within your grasp, and her story inspired me so much that we wanted to share it with our audience. She has recovered from congestive heart failure, stage 4 cancer, the death of her husband, a heart transplant, and a mastectomy. And she's the only person in the world who has run in a marathon one year after her heart transplant. Her energy and joyful nature is palpable, and she has transcended so many challenges, setting the example for the rest of us and teaching others how to find that within themselves. And if you would like to contact her, please email me, and then I will forward that to her. And my email would be ariel at starseedhotline.com. So uh, we would like to uh, thank Jada for hosting the switchboard tonight, although we won't be taking any questions. If you have questions for Dr. Don, uh, send me that email. And if you would like to show our support or your, your support of our show, just click follow on our show page. And, of course, our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you'll get a window of 10 hours of manifestational power. You can find out exactly when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you order that a week or two before your birthday, that's enough time, but If you want a reading of that chart, please order it about two months before your birthday so that we can get you in and on the schedule before those 10 hours happen. So I am going to just go right into it. I kind of miss Anastasia's news and the applause that she usually gets, so I'm going to give that applause to Dr. Dawn. Hi, Dr. Don. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. I love the applause. That is super fun, and the music is super fun too. So this is exciting. I wish I could see faces. I love to see faces. But hello, thank you so much for having me this evening. Oh, it is it is just a, a pleasure and honor, and uh, I'm so grateful 
because uh, after after uh, we had our session, your energy is so beyond what I what I experience from clients that I knew that there was something a very important mes- message that that you care carry you live and your passion is is off the scale. So I am so glad that it worked out for you to be with us tonight. And um, I'm just going to lead it off kind of with one question, and then you can take it from there and tell your story. But let's just kind of start with um, your early life. I mean, what were you like as a child, uh, your upbringing, uh, and just take it from there. Oh, you know, no one's ever actually asked me that question. And I think that question is pivotal to why I am what I am and how I've gotten through what I've gotten through with such grace. And we'll kind of come back to that word later. But I had so much love in my family. My mom talks about the story of wanting to conceive so much when she was and my father were trying to have me that she remembers the day she conceived and she just said she remembers feeling magical like and I thought she described it <laughs> and as a very young child I, I I mean from the day I was born I was just a very happy child and it was kind of interesting because at the young age of around four or five I was just enamored by older individuals who were really vital and around this time is when the Today Show Willard Scott would host the 100-year birthday celebration on the Smucker's Jar. So this is so funny. So people would say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? The question that all little kids get asked, right? And I'd say, I want to be in a Smucker's Jar. And my parents would just laugh because they knew what that meant. I, I was really interested in becoming a vital, healthy, 100-year-old woman at some point in my life. And then I, I eventually also said, I want to be a doctor. So I was really um, just in love with life at such a very young age. And everything was so precious to me. And I think it's how my parents raised me, just to have uh, such gratefulness for everything we were given. And I would say that my level of appreciation for anything that came my way was certainly far apart from that of any other classmates I had. But everything always went my way. It was like the perfect childhood. And so I was really, really blessed um, to be given that, that beautiful upbringing with so much love. My younger brother, when he was born, I was about four, and he had some health issues. And around that time, they you know, were, were very concerned they were going to have to be on many, many medications to make him well. And they had seen an alternative medical provider who did cranial sacral therapy. And that further kind of enhanced my interest in healthy living and natural medicine and energy medicine as well, because it really was cranial sacral therapy that helped turn my brother's health around, and he's a very um, healthy, flourishing uh, man with his own family at this point. So, you know, fast forward, um, life went as Don wanted. You know, I went to undergraduate studies, uh, did very well, really enjoyed my time there, had wonderful friendships, dear friends with these individuals still to this day. Uh, Went on after undergraduate studies, to do research on individuals that were 100 years old that were still physically active. And, and I really took time to get to know these individuals. Like, what made them love their life so much? I was always just very interested by that. 
And I worked with a lot of doctors doing research, and they had encouraged me, you know, it's, it's probably time for you to go on to medical school. That's what you've always wanted to do. But I was very reticent to go to traditional medical school initially. It just, it just wasn't for me. I was really interested in these alternative methods of healing. So I went to naturopathic school in Arizona, and I loved it. And I studied the naturopathic school for two years, and, and I had realized that, gosh, I just don't want my career to limit where I end up settling sometime in the future. And at that time, naturopathy could only be practiced and licensed in three states, because this is many years ago. Things have changed. So I ended up transitioning to traditional medical school. And interestingly enough, a few months into medical school, I started not feeling well. This, this woman who had taken such good care of her life, you know, for the first 26 years and always eaten healthy and exercised, I started coughing and I felt short of breath. So I saw a doctor and they said it was asthma and quickly prescribed an inhaler and sent me on my merry way. So I used the inhaler for a few weeks, didn't get better. So I saw another doctor and this other doctor said, you need to use it more. So I used it more and I continued to get more and more sick. And I, I eventually saw a third doctor and believe it or not, this doctor actually said it was in my head. He said this is something that all medical students go through. I, w I was manifesting this. And, and ironically, I kind of believed him because at that time, you know, and he asked me this question, what are you studying in medical school right now? Like, he made me feel so crazy. And I said, well, we're studying lung health. And he's like, see? You know, so I thought, oh, this really is in my head. So I went home, and it was a few days later, I was walking home from classes, and I collapsed. And they took me to the emergency room, and I had – a mass that was 16 centimeters occupying my entire thoracic cavity or my entire chest. They did a CAT scan. This imaging showed that this enormous mass was wrapped around my heart and it was pressing on the, the vessels that go to our brain and go to the rest of our body. And so that's why I collapsed. My heart just wasn't able to function because this tumor was, was compressing it. So they took me to the emergency room. They did the pathology. And the next day I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And this was actually Thanksgiving weekend, uh, the year 2000. And the doctors had said if I didn't do treatment, I had weeks to maybe months to live, that they needed to start treatment immediately, that there was no time for fertility preservation, I wouldn't be able to have kids someday, and that I needed to drop out of medical school, which was really difficult because that was, you know, my dream was to become a doctor and to help people and help myself learn to live to be 100, right? I, I just was on this path <laughs> that now is getting quickly changed. And that's why I thought, oh, gosh, what's going to happen? But, you know, it's kind of interesting. Being told that you have possibly months to live at the age of 26 and that you need to stop your, your dream of your life to become a doctor, the training for that, and that you won't be able to have kids someday, I didn't feel down. I, I felt inspired. Like, I felt like, okay, game on. Like, they're messing with the wrong girl kind of a thing, you know? And right. it really kind of triggered this. It did. It just triggered this, like, immense autonomous motivation deep within to just fight. And, and I don't know if I like that word fight. I actually don't like that word fight. So I'm not going to use that word because that wasn't what I had. I guess to accept. It gave me this power and strength to accept what he told me and to do what I knew how to do best, and that was to live healthy. I, um, did do the conventional therapy with chemotherapy, radiation, and I even needed a bone marrow transplant, which meant about a month 
was about four to six weeks in the hospital with very high intensity chemotherapy. And the medical team was wonderful. They were very, very supportive of me using naturopathy alongside of the conventional treatments. And so there was a naturopathic doctor that also did some various therapies for me, um, including some Reiki and things like that during this time. And, you know, it was so interesting during my bone marrow transplant because, and during my chemotherapy, there were so many special people that came into my life during this time, all with a very strong purpose. And, you know, all these people are still very special in my life at this time. And they would go with to me with treatments and make it fun. We would do things after chemotherapy and make it fun. But I remember having that bone marrow transplant and looking out and seeing all the other patients very sick. And, gosh, I mean, I was as vital as ever. I, I, just, I didn't skip a beat during these treatments. I stayed in medical school. I didn't miss one thing. I, I missed classes, but they were sure to get me my notes and get me my tests that I would take in the hospital. And I ended up graduating with honors. So my cancer was cured. It was truly a miracle because it was such an advanced cancer because those doctors kept on kind of just ignoring things, just thinking I was kind of making this up. So that was a big lesson and something I work with a lot of medical students that you, you've got to listen to your patients. And, you know, right. I actually, right, you know, it's just you've got to listen to the patients. And during this time of me being, being diagnosed with cancer, I had met a gentleman and his name was Charles and he was, he was older than me. He was about 24 years older than me. And I remember thinking, no, you know, I'm not going to date an older man. But as time went on, the wisdom that he offered and kind of the wisdom and, and the sacredness of life that I had just grown to appreciate in such a way that was so much deeper than any other young men that I, I had dated at that time up to then, we just continued to grow our love for each other and our connection for each other. And we ended up getting married. And in 2003, we found out I was pregnant. We were able to grow our family. So another miracle happened. And so I had a little girl in 2003. It was just such a beautiful finding that I never thought would be possible after going through all of those treatments. But unfortunately, a few weeks after I delivered my daughter, I started to become unwell again. And in fact, the symptoms were almost exactly like they were when I was diagnosed with cancer. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't hold her. I couldn't give her a bath. I couldn't change her diaper. I couldn't do anything. My mom had to help me with everything. And, you know, I kind of tried to minimize it because I really didn't want to believe what I was worried was happening with my cancer was back. But one day I became so unwell that I, I really knew I needed to be evaluated in the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and this time it wasn't, cancer, this time they had found out that my heart was no longer pumping in a way it should. And instead it was only pumping at 8%. And so I was diagnosed in 2003 with advanced heart failure from maybe a few things, maybe from the childbirth, but more likely from the radiation from all the chemotherapy I had been given. So I had an amazing medical team. They filled my heart with love and hope and knowing that they had me, that they were going to take care of me. And when the medications no longer worked, there would be procedures they would do. And procedures no longer worked, I would probably eventually need a heart transplant. And so that's exactly what happened. They put me on medications, and it was amazing. I really did start feeling better. Even though the heart function didn't improve very much, I did feel much better. And so that was in 2003. And then 
my daughter continued to grow up and my husband and I, we continued our loving marriage. And it was in 2006, normal, normal family weekend. I was in residency at the time. So we had a very busy life, especially trying to balance our family time. We always prioritized our weekends. And on Saturday nights, we would go out to dinner as a family. We had a big family, an extended family. And following this night's dinner, my husband said, you know what, honey, go sleep with the baby. And so I, I said, all right, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. So I went with my daughter. We went to bed, and he went to bedroom upstairs. The next morning, woke up. Usually our whole household would be up super early. We're just early risers, 4 a.m. sort of people. My family was the same way waking up. I just loved the morning. If I could get up at 3 a.m., I would. But I try to get up at 4 a.m. because I know I need my rest. So woke up at 4 o'clock, had a cup of coffee. My daughter woke up shortly after. We're playing. And, you know, 6 o'clock rolls around, 7 o'clock in the morning rolls around, and my husband still wasn't awake. And I started to think to myself, this is a little bit unusual. So come 8 o'clock, he still wasn't up, so I went to go check on him. And he had passed away in his sleep. And, you know, for oh. me, this, this really was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in life. And when you have your own health adversity, it's, it's easy to be strong for yourself. You know, you worry about those you love. You see those hurting outside of you or external for you, but you're in control of your own destiny when it's happening to you. But when you lose someone you love and the father to your child, you're just lost. And I remember, you know, this, my vital existence is so incredibly high and it's always been. I mean, I just live in like this state of blissful existence is how I would describe it from the time I, was, I can remember when I was a little girl. And I remember finding him and just feeling that existing, existence dropping, like a free fall. Like you see those uh, rides at Disney, that's a free fall. I mean, that is exactly what my vital energy did. I went to the ground level. It didn't go below. I was never depressed. But I could not elevate my energy for many, many months. It took me about nine months. And I went to a church. I was raised Roman Catholic, and my faith is very, very important to me. And I remember going to church, and there was this special speaker, Sister McKenna, and she talked about how she adored Jesus. And her words brought me so much comfort in knowing that I was going to be okay. And it was that moment forward that I was able to get strong again. I knew I had to show up my, for myself because I had to show up for myself for Sophia. I needed to be there for her. And, you know, what I would really say is there was, there was such transformative power in what I went through. And through going through what I'd, all, what I'd gone through years before that, too, with the cancer, with being diagnosed with heart failure. But when I lost my husband, that ability to try to transform grief and that suffering that you experience. I really learned that I could, I could move beyond that hardship and, and just transcend into a life of renewal. And it was a time of great awakening and a time when I became so inspired just to be able to really persevere through this hardship for reasons that were external to me. And, you know, there's a saying, and it, I love this. One of my mentors shared this with me. And the heart keeps 5% of the blood for itself before it can pump blood to the rest of the body. You know, so it must nurture itself before it can serve the body. And that's so true, and that's really what I did during this time. I really did deep reflection. But 
when I think about this, 95% of what the heart does it's giving everywhere else in the body. It's serving the needs of the body, or, or in life, it's serving the needs of others. And so during this time, of course, I was there for my beautiful daughter and for my patients. You know, I knew that that was my calling and to continue my path of healing in medicine. And so this was 2006, and so years have gone by, and I actually miraculously got a little stronger. About two years after my husband had died, there was a point when I actually felt as if my heart function was almost normalizing. It was just quite incredible. And that had lasted for a few years. And then come around 2015, things started getting a little more challenging again. That's kind of the natural um, course of heart failure, if you may. You know, and all these procedures that they had done over those years and the medicines, they kind of were just finally no longer able to benefit my body. And you figure at this point in 2015, I had lived with advanced heart failure for 15 years, which was far more than, than you hear of. So I was quite blessed. And in 2016 was one of the most powerful days of my life. Um, I had finished my morning patient panel, and I love being with patients. It's just something I treasure so much. It's just, it warms my heart and it's the most fulfilling experience one can ever imagine to be with a patient at a time and vulnerability to help them on their healing journey or to help them, you know, maybe experience their aliveness, something that I have been so blessed to have every single day of my, my, my life. So I finished with my patient panel and I had this amazing presentation to deliver to the, the leaders at my hospital about an integrative medicine and health program I developed. And in fact, this is how I met Ariel, because one of the individuals that I had hired for this particular program to pilot is a five elements acupuncturist who had done Reiki for me for many, many years. And, and he is just truly such a gifted healer when it comes to energy medicine and five elements acupuncture. And he had really kept me well for so many years. And so he was part of this program that I was going to be presenting. And that's how I met you, Ariel, was through Mark. Right. And so I remember, yeah, so I remember walking into the boardroom and my legs felt so weak, they were almost shivering. And I thought to myself, am I nervous? I, as you can tell, I have no problem talking. I love talking. <laughs> I walk into the boardroom and, you know, everyone, you know, the majority of doctors, and they're, they're pretty formal people. I am not, I am like full of life, high energy, and I just, I like to engage with others. So usually I would make like a lighthearted joke or kind of warm the energy of the room, but not initially. I knew I needed to stay just totally focused on the presentation I had to give. So I walked into the boardroom and they had my seat ready for me at the head of the table, of course, right? Not intimidating at all when you're already not feeling quite right. And I remembered, for those of you who have ever done a presentation and you grab the mouse and you have to try to control that cursor on the screen and this particular screen was in the far, far distance, far away from that boardroom uh, table seat that I was sitting at. And I couldn't control the cursor on the screen. I was really not able to almost feel my extremities at this point. And within moments, everything started to fade, including that cursor on the distant screen, then the people in the room. And that was my last conscious memory. And so... Oh. 
you know, this was a time of, of complete quietude. And, and how I would describe it is there was vast darkness, there was no light. And it was a place of complete innocence and comfort. There was absolutely no fear at all. There was only acceptance of this complete unknowing. And I still had some awareness, though. I remember this cool air that was kind of coming over my body, and I felt as if my body was floating. And I remember one single hair kind of stuck in my lipstick. And I remember feeling it there, but yet I remember feeling like I wasn't able to remove it, but yet I was still okay with it. It was just like everything was very accepting. And I've described it before that I felt like the hands of God were holding me, like my body was enveloped in love. And it was just so beautiful. And I had no desire to leave where I was at. There was absolutely no bright light, and there were no other people talking to me. It was just a place of complete love and acceptance. I had had a cardiac arrest, and it was a complete flat line for four minutes. And suddenly, I felt this gigantic wave of energy rush through my body. And this is preceded by a big, huge thump. And I had had a defibrillator in my chest. And believe it or not, over those four minutes, that defibrillator kept on shocking me and shocking me and shocking me, but it just wasn't bringing me back to life. Until about the four-minute mark. And I remember my entire body at this point was just bursting with this electrifying energy. And I've described it with this, like, total mystic, miraculous, and I really can't verbalize the reality of this immense power that came through my body. Wow. And so it's such a gift, I mean, to experience, and I've used that word already, I think, probably two or three times, the sacredness, because I think there's such sacredness in life, but there's such sacredness in death. And, man, what it can teach you. So I'm not scared of death after experience, not whatsoever. I certainly don't want to die. I still do my best to live the healthiest life possible, but it was the most beautiful experience someone could go through. And so it's given me such comfort to know that my husband who passed away went through that, and he's, you know, I had that knowing he's in heaven and he's safe. And, and so he's fast forward. So following this experience, the doctors knew that my heart was no longer working good. They tried a few additional procedures. In fact, they did one procedure that was the final procedure. They could do no more after this one. And I actually had a stroke after that procedure, and I lost, it, lost vision in my left eye. I was very sick after that procedure. So they listed me for heart transplant in 2019. This is during COVID. I actually did oh. develop COVID. Um, but I did okay with COVID. Uh, you know, I did a lot of the nat- – I did all naturopathic approaches to care during COVID because this was before we had the vaccine. This is before we had a new treatment. Um, and so I did a lot of fasting. I did. I just fasted during my COVID. And I actually got through it very um, smoothly. I, it was actually quite a miracle. I'm on a whole food plant-based diet. And we know that people on a whole food plant-based diet, you know, they have a 73% less risk of having moderate to severe COVID. So I attribute my survival of that COVID to God, number one. <laughs> number two, probably to the whole food plant-based nutrition I was on. And number three, I think the fasting is critical. Excuse me, the so, what? What was fasting, critical? I did the, the oh, whole food fast? based nutrition and the fasting. Yeah, I did, I did fast during that time. As long as I had the fever, I, I just did a water fast, and, and I thought that that really did help me. So 
I was on the transplant list for 14 months and no matching heart, and I continued to get more and more unwell, <clears throat> especially that COVID. Even though I survived the COVID, it had, it had really made the heart that much weaker. So they admitted me to the hospital for supportive therapy, and I waited the rest of the time for an organ to be found in the hospital. And on February 5th, 20, uh, 2000, uh, 2021, a matching heart was found. And I remember my daughter had come to visit me because this was during COVID. So, you know, transplantation during this time was so hard because your family couldn't stay with you. And you had to really limit who would come and visit you because they were scared you could get sick with another COVID infection. And so could other patients. So, you know, here I am in the hospital and I can't see my daughter, but they let her come up every once in a while for dinner. So she had dinner with me this night. I, you know, had walked her to the um, elevator. I was on IV medications that were pumping my heart. So I was feeling strong enough to walk. And my cardiologist was there, and this was nighttime, and he said, can I talk with you? So he walked me back to my room, and it was like that walk where no one knows where to put your arms. No one knows what to say. It was the most awkward walk in the world. It was like a first date kind of walk. Uh So he tells me, we found a match. And you would think when you hear that, after having heart failure for 18 years, that you would jump out of the bed in enthusiasm and excitement, but you don't. You just pause, and all of a sudden you realize that someone else has to die for you to live. And it's just so challenging to accept that concept. And then even more, you're going to be losing your heart, and I'm going to be losing my heart that had this, like, vital essence of bliss, and they're going to take out my heart. And several months before my transplant, a good friend of mine who's a psychiatrist had said to me, Dawn, do you even want to have a transplant? I thought, are you crazy? I don't have a choice. He's like, well, aren't you worried your personality is going to change. So, of course, that starts really, you know, like going through my mind, positive dawn is all of a sudden becoming a little pessimistic, thinking of all these scenarios, like what if my personality changes? What if this happens? And so then my transplant surgeon goes on to say something else. He says, Dawn, I have one more thing to tell you. Your donor is an IV drug user with hepatitis C. She's a high-risk donor. But we haven't found any other hearts for over... 14 months that have been close to a match for you. So what do you do? You know, I mean, what do you do? And I, I just had to think about it. And within a short period of time, a few hours, I had this knowing, this strong sense of knowing and guidance that this was the right heart for me, that this heart was meant for me. In fact, I thought that it was so beautiful that my soul and in, in the love and the passion and just the appreciation I have for life could meet this heart that maybe didn't have the beautiful life that I had had. So I looked at it as such an incredible gift and opportunity to accept this heart and give her just this precious life. And so I remember going down to the operating room and seeing my surgeon, who's a dear, dear friend of mine, and we had eye contact. I knew immediately that everything was going to be okay. I had absolutely no fear it was the only operation in my life that as you're going under anesthesia, I had no fear. And here I was going into a surgery where they were going to be removing my heart and giving me a new one. And we knew that I was one of the highest risk surgeries ever because of all of the radiation that I had had to my chest, specifically to the heart. And so they knew it was going to be very difficult to remove my old heart. And so the surgery, as I was going under anesthesia, I just remember giving gratefulness to my donor and the donor family. And several days later, I woke up after the heart transplant and 
when I had my near-death experience, that experience taught me to hold on to every single second that you're ever given. And when I woke up from that heart transplant, I remember just feeling completely awestruck by the harmony of this whistling sound. It was like there was music in the room as I'm waking up. <clears throat> and I realized that the whistling sound was my hair brushing rhythmically against the crisp, the crisp white cheek of the hospital pillow. And it was exactly in sync with the powerful beat of my new heart. And I remember my body being warm feeling for the first time in 18 years, and my mind had clarity for the first time in a decade. And the most powerful experience of all of this is when I woke up, is it felt as if every single cell in my body was oscillating at a higher vibrational frequency, one that no one, unless they've ever had a similar experience, could explain. And I still have that, such an incredible feeling. And so a few nights later, I was really restless, and I actually became a little bit frustrated, again, thinking back and reflecting that I had to get this IV drug user heart. And earlier in the day, the doctors had told me that I had developed that hepatitis C infection. And on the same day, my insurance actually denied paying for the medication I needed to treat that hepatitis C. <laughs> Give it to, you know, leave it to insurance companies, right? That all worked <laughs> out, by the way. Once I got home, they approved the medication. They just didn't want to spend the money in the hospital. I, I, I to this day, will never understand that. But anyways, well, it was a little bit, <clears throat> just, you go through a hard time after the transplant. You're on a lot of medications. And, and again, this is a little different for me to be on all these medications, very high dose steroids. And that night I had a dream. And in this dream, I woke up in this dwelling place and it was like a concrete building with a door and a window, and I ran to the window to see if my car was there, it wasn't there. There was a chair in the room, and I looked to see if my purse was there, it wasn't there. So I remember kind of crawling my way to the door, and outside the door there was tall, tall blades of grass, and I remember crawling, crawling through the grass, and as I'm crawling through the grass, it was almost like a sensory experience. I remember the grass kind of grabbing onto my leg, almost as if it was cutting my leg. And I continued to kind of crawl through this cool grass and it was a beautiful day and I flipped over onto my back and there was these big cumulus clouds overhead and in the distance there were these families, children, mothers, fathers, many of them playing in harmony. It was just this blissful existence. It almost was an image of heaven on earth is how I would describe it. And in this dream, a word came over me that said grace. And I woke up from this dream right after, and I had such a sense of comfort, and I was just filled with such love and peace and harmony, and every thought that I had had about, man, why did I get this, this heart, was right where it needed to be. It was with such loving acceptance, and I knew that I probably should even name my heart Grace, and so believe it or not, that's actually what I did. Oh, but at this moment, so I looked perfect. at my phone because I was... Isn't it? So I need my heart grace. So in this moment, I looked at the music playing in the room. I would always play instrumental music on my phone while in the hospital. And the song that was playing at that very moment, the title was Grace. And so that was wow. quite the serendipity involved, right? So I, I couldn't sleep. I just thought this was just so beautiful and so meaningful. So I happened to open my laptop because I thought, well, I'll just do a little bit of work. I'll 
for me and the email title was full of grace so it was just uh-huh. such a powerful message you know at that time and you know I, I think of angels when I think of grace and I, I think of grace as a virtue from God and it's really the power that God willingly gives us to do what we could never do on our own and here I'm being given these messages of grace and grace and grace in this amazing new heart that's giving me my life back. And, you know, perhaps angels are even an object of God's grace and love. That's really truly what I believe, and I believe we're always surrounded by angels. And you know, I guess we're created to receive this grace. And I really feel it's perhaps an opportunity to respond to God's love and just to welcome this blissful life. So you know, some of these things are still really hard for me, I think, to talk through. I'm still processing so much because it's just been such a beautiful life. And I would never trade one of these experiences in ever, even though perhaps on the outside folks could look in and say, oh, my gosh, that had to be so hard or that had to be so hard. It's just it's been one amazing thing after another. And with each little bit of adversity, it's like I ascend this escalator of just supreme existence that has just been really remarkable. And it was kind of, there was waiting, the second wind on this journey of life. And, you know, it was just knowing that I, I felt like I had what it take, took to just cultivate this fire on the belly desire to push to extremes and to really do all that I was meant to be and do. And everything seemed so effortless. It seemed like there was no struggles. There were no dead ends. And I just had so many opportunities that kept on coming my way to flourish. I just felt that there was really no limit. And thank you, Ariel, you mentioned about running the marathon. So <clears throat> being that my practice is centered in uh, integrative oncology and lifestyle medicine, and the fact that I do live a very healthy life, I thought, what can I do that no one else has ever done? I thought, huh, I'll try to run a marathon on my one-year heart transplant anniversary. So it was really challenging. But, you know, really, I think a marathon is kind of metaphorical for life in a way. So I was able right. to do it. I was actually able to run that marathon on my one-year heart transplant anniversary to the day. It was exactly on the day, which was just amazing. And what was more cool is it was a breast cancer marathon, so I was able to run it in honor of my patients. And this was the very marathon I used to volunteer at because I was never healthy enough to run it, but I would always volunteer at it just to give back to an amazing organization that raises money for breast cancer uh, patients undergoing treatment and for survivors in need. But the really amazing thing about the marathon was the fact that at the finish line, there was a huge construction sign. And on that construction sign, the name of the construction company was Grace. You can't make this stuff up. You cannot make this up. And then my number, which no one planned, because everyone said, did someone make that number for her? It was 365, 365 days after the transplant. But that was my number that just happened to be my number. So it's pretty cool. And, you know, I have people that ask me, you know, <clears throat> how did you do it? Like, what's your secret? I was thinking, number one thing was I never let go of that goal-directed mission of really wanting to be a doctor and to deliver that original medicine through the lens of love for humanity. I mean, I just love people. And I would say that it's more in tune now after the transplant than it ever was before. And I think that is one thing I learned from the transplant 
is not that I was overly judgmental before, but I think that's part of human nature, but I don't have any judgment. I, I just, I love everyone. And, and I just want to help every human um, and living thing possible. And it just feels so innately necessary for me to do that. And, you know, I think at a basic biological level, we all want to be connected and care for others. And we really have to figure out how we can do that in life because life is about something so much bigger than us. You know, I think the next thing is I was filled with such gratitude and gratitude is really what allowed me to remain well during this time. And I had so much loving support of my family and friends and the amazing medical team, but I'm just so grateful that I really have that belief in something bigger than me. You know, I have this belief in God to give me that knowing that everything's going to be okay. And Gratitude will increase optimism. It'll move us from a place of deficit and take us to this place of abundance. You know, I, the last thing is that I flipped the script. You know, on any type of adversity, whether it was cancer and heart failure, I really flipped the script and I reframed, reframed it to become more of a teacher of life. And that's really what helped me to attain this life filled with, with blissful existence amid this adversity and in time of disease. So I think we just really need to harness trauma in our life you know, this is a time of growth, and we can, use, we can really, really let that trauma help to guide us to discover our, our own personal innate strengths and, and establish what perhaps possibilities seem to be impossible, what could be possible, and have a deep focus on your purpose. You know, our meaning in life is to find our gift, but our purpose of life is to really share it with others. And that's the most important message here, I think, is just to serve others, love all, and do so without judgment. Most importantly, love yourself as well. I think that's so necessary, you know, and I think my parents taught me that at a very young age. So I feel like I've talked so much. I mean, the story kind of goes on and on, but I'm going to just stop there. Ariel, questions do you have for me? Oh, well, um, more more comments, um, you know, with the, with the word grace repeating um, with the dream and and with the um, you naming your heart grace and uh, what the, the construction company and the song on the radio, it just you know in in quick um, se- sequence, um, you know like Lavender always says, uh, synchronicity is confirmation, and three times it's it takes on um, a, a, a a new energy. When it happens three times, then it becomes almost mm-hmm. like a new um, entity in itself. And yes, the grace um, that is given to us is meant to be then recycled and given to others. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. it's not something that you it's should hold on to. <clears throat> yeah, it's just something yeah. that um, you know you you have to be recycled. So you know yeah. you experienced grace. And your patients then experience that as you, as you kind of like are the conduit from, mm-hmm. you know, from the higher level. And certainly, um, I, I did, I did want to mention that um, when my, as a lot of our listeners may know, um, my brother had a double lung transplant. Mm-hmm. And I was I was with him um, at Duke University uh, for that, and he had the same feeling of it was like ambivalence. He wanted to live, but 
he didn't want someone to have to die so that mm-hmm. he could do it. And um, one of his uh, counselors made the point that you're not hoping for someone to die so you can live because people die every single day. What you're hoping for is that one of them is a donor. Mm-hmm. You know, so and it, be able to um, carry that life forward. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. So you know, um, in honoring my brother and the you know the 13 years that he got when five was all that you know the average he got 13. Um, in honoring my brother, then I I ticked the box on my on my driver's license to be an organ donor, mm-hmm. and I really you know would encourage people to do the same. Uh, <clears throat> if you know, and a lot of people have a loved one that has received a transplant of some kind. So, um, and as a matter of fact, and this is a little bit off the topic, but it's my um, my brother's. Um, sister-in-law is a, a Maryland state senator, and she mm-hmm. introduced legislation that there be more places besides just your driver's license where you can indicate that you wish to be an organ donor. So, you know, like voter registration, um, other official documents. So, and it's really important to increase that public awareness that. Um, you can, you know, in a in a final um, gift of love, help someone achieve and, and and experience what you've been given and what my brother was given. Oh, that's beautiful, <clears throat> Ariel. You're so true. And you know, people don't realize 95% of Americans believe in organ donation, but you have to take that step, like Ariel said, and register. And only 50, 58%. That's the only amount that actually do register. And you can even register on your iPhone app, on the health app. You can register online at registerme.org or at your DMV when you get your driver's license. And it's important to talk to your family about it because if you register and you don't share that wish with your family and it catches, you know, gosh, I mean, you know, we don't want anything to happen to anyone, but if it did and that is your wish, it's important your family knows about that so they can honor that wish. And, you know, organ donation just transforms that finality of death. I mean, what good are our organs if we're burying them? And a lot of people fear that if you check that box, you're an organ donor, the medical team isn't going to try to save your life. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. If anything, it's the other way around. Because, it's you know, in medicine, we're always going to save a life. It is just what we do. It's what is in our passion. We take the Hippocratic Oath. It is just what we do. We want all life to live. But if someone's an organ donor, we have to kind of fight extra hard not to let their heart stop or let anything happen because we have to keep those organs alive so they can get everything signed and, and do everything necessary to make that process happen. So there absolutely is no reason to think that the medical team will stop caring for you in a way that they were going to try to save your, save your life. Right. Well, that's that's a good point. So... Um... I think did did you have something another um, bump in the road recently since the oh, heart transplant? I did. It's so crazy! I forgot about it. It's kind of crazy. So yeah, so three weeks ago, 
you know, the radiation therapy, a lot of people don't realize that in the olden days when we did radiation, the harm it did. Nowadays we have, you know, proton beam and we have different sorts of breathing techniques and CT-guided um, simulations so they can be very accurate with where that radiation beam goes. But when I had had my radiation therapy, it was a little difficult then to have that advancement in science, which we didn't have, and also my tumor was at my heart, and it also goes through all that breast tissue. So during that time with heart failure and my defibrillator, as a woman who was at high risk for breast cancer, I could only do mammograms. And when a woman is at a high risk for breast cancer, whether it's because they have a family history or a prior biopsy with an abnormality that increases the risk, or if they had radiation prior to the age of 30 to that chest mediastinal area, all three of those reasons are reasons why women need to do MRI. And then when women have a very high risk of breast cancer, oftentimes it's recommended to consider prophylactic mastectomy. And for all those years with heart failure and my defibrillator, I could never do an MRI. And so then after my transplant, they were able to remove most of my defibrillator, but there was still a tiny little lead in there. And they said, we're going to go ahead and do this MRI because we need to make sure everything is okay with your breast tissue. And they found something in my left breast, but it wasn't something they could biopsy. So they did six-month follow-up MRI, and it was still there. And they wanted to do another six-month MRI because they knew they still couldn't biopsy it. But during that second MRI, that lead had gotten hot in my heart. Like, it actually heated up. And they no longer felt comfortable with me doing MRIs anymore. So the option was the most appropriate option was to do a prophylactic mastectomy. So I did that two weeks ago. But I forgot I did. I'm doing great. You know, it's kind of cool. You know, being a doctor, I said, do I really need to stay in the hospital? Come on. You guys gave me a heart. I get I need to stay tonight for that. Actually, several weeks. For that. <laughs> but I said, I've been in the hospital enough in my lifetime. <clears throat> so my good friend did the surgery, and they let me go home that night. So I went home. I didn't take any pain meds. The next day, I was up and about, driving, living life to its fullest. My only thing is I can't run for six weeks, and I'm trying to train for the on New York Marathon, which is in November. So this past weekend, I walked nine miles. So um, they're telling me I can't run for six weeks, and this weekend is going to be five weeks and three days. So I think that we're going to round up. What do you say? I'm going to say six weeks. <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> I love to run. The energy that I get from running is great because it balances me out. I'm so high energy that I need something to kind of knock me down a little bit. <laughs> so that helps to balance it out. Yeah, I'm – I'm really blessed with, with a very high amount of energy, and it's pretty exciting because I love working with patients because I, I do telehealth mainly, but I can really share that with them, and it further elevates me. I don't lose it. It just kind of helps me kind of ascend that escalator, like I said, of, of vital existence. So it's really such a blessing to be in the position I'm in. And to help move patients beyond hope to knowing that miracles happen, and I have a patient right now that I'm working with with a very advanced cancer, and they had met with one of the team today, and the team had said her disease is incurable. And several days ago, I had told them, I believe in miracles, and I really want you to also. And he says, well, that sounds pretty negative. And I said, well, you'll understand as you go through this journey that I want you to hold on to the idea of miracles. And I love that. Because some people see the duality of a miracle, right? And, you know, there's a duality in everything in life. Um, you know, I, I think if all of you have probably read, you know, if you think about waves you know you have the high part of the wave you have the low part of the wave but it's all water you know and so i think miracles happen and i think i'm living proof of that so if i can help people move beyond that hope to knowing 
that's the message I'd love to give, a little more certainty with knowing. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Hope leaves room for doubt, but knowing mm-hmm. is knowing. Yeah. I and so. and so yeah. when when you um when you work with your patients um you give the the supportive um you know um I don't know what the proper term is but the peripheral things you know what they you treat the whole person not I not do. The, not yeah. the disease Yeah it's the last and, question I come to is on, on that spirituality realm and you know what their beliefs are. I don't always get to it in the first visit just because it just depends, you know, almost always when someone's mortality is questioned, you suddenly develop your spirituality and your purpose in life because you start asking those very, those very important questions. For some people, it's the first time in their life they've asked them. But I do, um, I love Lisa Miller's research, and she's done a wonderful job in spirituality and looking at functional MRI. Um, she's a, a wonderful author of the book, The Awakened Brain, and she also wrote The Spiritual Child, but Dr. Lisa Miller um, <clears throat> she was a professor at Columbia. You, you should read her books if you haven't. Or you can just look her up on Google and you can listen to her podcast. Podcast is so in a way. So say that, say that again. What is her podcast? Her name's Le- uh, well, she's been interviewed on a lot of them. Um, oh. So if you search her name, Lisa Miller, she was on the psychology podcast last year, and I thought that was a beautiful interview that she did with uh Scott Barry Kaufman, who he is a positive psychologist, and he does some, uh, I think he does some really wonderful work as well in that space. So, you know, medicine is moving in this direction, and patients are dictating it, you know, because we, we need to believe in all forms of healing. And Einstein said that we're all, you know, vibration, and, you know, we're all energy. And you know that feeling when you kind of walk into a room and or if you walk next to a person and they're kind of down or they have kind of dark energy, no one feels good. But you walk into that room where someone's filled with vitality. I mean, your heart wants to dance, right? And and that's how I want to live. <laughs> I want to give energy yeah. to people and let their heart dance right along mine. So that's kind of how it feels. Right. I kind of feel like my heart's always dancing. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, you know, joy is the best medicine in that case, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the passion. And I, I think a lot of times... When people, you know, face some, you know, serious um, physical illness, or I mean, even even mental, any on any level, when they face a very serious um, uh, challenge, uh, it's a wake up call. Mm-hmm. And you have that. You have. I mean, mm-hmm. I personally believe that everyone has that spark of of you know the divine within them, and that. Mm-hmm can be uh that's that's a, a a spark that can be fanned into a flame into the into the you know transmutative fire uh and mm-hmm. and people people have that and obviously you have that and i think that you try to um ignite that in your patients yeah no you have to <clears throat> and you know it's really amazing to see how good my patients feel during their cancer treatment and and it's again that whole person approach it's everything from really nurturing that spiritual core which we're all born with a spiritual core and we have to fill it with what is most authentic to us in terms of spirituality maybe it is you know also part of that more um you know taught religion plus 
spirituality, or maybe it's just spirituality along another continuum, whatever that may be. But it's just knowing that we can fill that for patients can really help them to accept their diagnosis <clears throat> because life is about something bigger than them. You know, if you don't have spirituality, it's, I can only imagine how terrifying it would be if life is only about you, you know? So I, I think that that really is so important. And, you know, most patients come to see me to talk about whole food, plant-based nutrition, because that is my area of expertise. And I do think when it comes to energy, our nutrition can further elevate that. Like, I do think that's why I'm at this really high level of energy, because I think my nutrition kind of helps to further ascend that escalator. Um, but I meet some people that are so turbulent about what they eat, and they've forgotten all the other aspects of what it means to be alive, that I really try to kind of get them back to that core of developing their, their spiritual essence. And so it's a really beautiful space that I have to be with my patients to work on these important aspects of being alive. And it's just a shame that cancer has to um, teach us that. But it is a teachable moment. It's the biggest teachable moment I found in terms of all diagnoses that I work with. Those with cancer are the most desiring to understand life and to make their life full as possible for the remaining days on Earth, whatever they have left. Right, right. Well, this has just been such a pleasure to to speak with you, to hear your story, and just to experience your energy, your passion, um, and, and your dedication. So I know there are a lot of fortunate people in the world who have worked with you and more yet to come. And um, on, on that note, if, if anyone listening wanted to um, contact Dr. Dawn, uh, just email me and I will forward it to her. Uh, and my email would be ariel at starseedhotline.com. And uh, we just, we, we can't, we can't publish the professional aspect uh, of your uh, employers, let's just say. So, with that, I thank you so much for sharing and giving and, and being who you are. And I know that you teach as well. Um, you teach uh, other, uh, I don't know what to call it, student doctors or doctors-to-be. Um, you teach them as well. So thank you so much for the work you do because I think this planet is a little bit brighter because you're here still. Oh, that is so kind. Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that Mark had introduced us. And, you know, I know those of you doing this various energy work for patients, patients seek that out. So I appreciate that as well. So thank you for everything that you contribute to help people do good in this world and, and deliver that loving message and kindness to all. That's what's most important as well. So thanks again, Dawn. And we're going to sign off now um, and do, you know, let me know what's what's going on with you because I will, you are yeah. you are just such a delightful being and thank you so much oh, for coming Ariel, to this planet. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Oh, you're so kind. Well, thank you so much for your kindness and for being so loving and and doing everything that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You know, we're all sisters and brothers. So um, have have fun at that uh, marathon in November. I think you said it was, and then you will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> I know I can start think... running this weekend. We'll see how it goes. 
Okay, well, I mean, follow your doctor's advice, <laughs> but um, but yes, yes, I'll I'll think of you running another marathon. So. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. So much, thank you so much, Doctor Don. Until we speak okay. again. Okay. Okay. Good night. All right. Bye bye. And uh, we will be back uh, two weeks from tonight. And uh, Anastasia will be back. I think the power will be back on by then. And in the meantime, live each day with gratitude. Give as much compassion when you, as whenever you can. Until next time, good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 